Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, search corporate news media for recent stories on the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, in which some of the city's overwhelmingly black residents were paying upwards of $300 a month for water they couldn't even drink, based on an infrastructure decision on the water's source that their elected officials had no say in. And you'll find a few reports on how, yes, lead leaching pipes endangered people's health. But there's been a multi-million dollar settlement and a presidential commitment to address lead in water. So maybe it's all over but the shouting. CNN hosted a Republican Michigan Congress member who explained that Flint was under an unelected, austerity-minded emergency manager because, quote, their city had essentially collapsed. They had no strong functioning government, and the state had to step in, and there was an error in shifting water sources, close quote. That sounds lamentable, but not really blameworthy. So how do you square that, sorry, but let's move forward line with the information that investigators looking into the crisis found that the cell phones of key health officials and other players like then-Governor Rick Snyder's press secretary had been wiped of messages for the key period. While corporate media have largely let Flint go, the story isn't over, nor has justice been served. We'll hear from a reporter still on the case, Jordan Sheraton from independent news network Status Coup News. Also on the show, you don't need to put your ear to the ground to hear U.S. news media drumbeats for war of some sort with official enemies China and or Russia. With China, part of what we're being told to two-minute hate is their involvement on the African continent, where we're to understand they are nefariously trapping countries in debt, unlike the U.S. involvement in the region, which has been about bringing joy and love and hope. Just because a playbook is old doesn't mean it won't be used again and again. That vision relies on amnesia and ignorance of what the U.S. has done and is doing in sub-Saharan Africa, a topic that, if news media wanted to explore it, well, they had a great chance this past week with the 60th anniversary of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first elected prime minister of Democratic Republic of the Congo. Why was Lumumba killed? And what is the living legacy of that undercovered murder? We'll hear from Maurice Carney, co-founder and executive director of the group Friends of the Congo. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, brought to you every week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In an op-ed for The Hill a year ago, Michigan Representative Dan Kildee called the 2014 decision to switch the source of Flint, Michigan's drinking water, quote, one of the greatest environmental injustices in our lifetimes, close quote. That may be true, but the environment didn't do it. 
The Flint crisis was and is a crisis of democracy. Decision-making had been taken out of the hands of Flint's elected officials and given to an emergency manager tasked with reining in costs, a process that seems to be used disproportionately in communities of color, taking decisions out of community hands but leaving them to deal with their fallout. The Flint story reflects malfeasance, austerity politics, and punishing indifference to the lives of black and brown people, as well as the limits of news media's attention span. Evidence suggests most big media have either swallowed the Pollyanna line that the Flint water crisis is over and justice served, or else the nihilist line that Flint was really no worse than lots of other places, so what are you going to do? But some journalists have not stopped seeing the ongoing community harms resulting from decisions carried out by real people with names and addresses as worthy of pursuit. We're joined now by Jordan Cheriton, investigative reporter and the CEO of independent news network Status Coup News. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Jordan Cheriton. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, the story has some twists and turns and a lot of players, individual and institutional. Folks can listen to previous interviews to get some of the early issues. But I'd like to ask you to bring us up to date. What are the latest developments in efforts to hold officials accountable for what was not an accident, but a crime and one with real and ongoing effects? Yeah, so unfortunately, the latest efforts seems to be inadequate uh, based on my reporting. But the current attorney general of Michigan, Dana Nessel, and her prosecution team, which basically is the second Flint investigation in eight years, there was an original investigation team launched under the previous Michigan attorney general. They investigated from 2016 through 2018. And then when the current attorney general, Nessel, came in, she basically fired that team and restarted the whole investigation. That new investigation charged Governor Snyder last year with a misdemeanor for his role in the water crisis. My reporting over the years has indicated there was a whole lot more there than a misdemeanor. And my reporting actually showed that the original Flint water investigators who were fired by the current attorney general, they were actually building a case against the governor for involuntary manslaughter. So uh, they were going much more aggressively against the governor than the current prosecution team ended up doing. They only charged him with a misdemeanor. There's been some other charges against state and city officials. Nothing has gone to trial yet. Currently, the governor, uh, former governor Rick Snyder and other defendants are trying to get the charges tossed, basically claiming that the prosecution team made errors in how they collected and distributed evidence. So right now it's kind of stuck in delays uh, and, you know, big picture, we're now heading into year eight in April. No one has been convicted. No one is in jail. The people of Flint are still suffering. Residents are getting sicker and sicker as the years go on. I think that's something people don't realize the effects of heavy metal poisoning. It gets worse as the years go goes on. So residents I speak with uh, developing cancers that they had no family history for liver issues, kidney issues, bone issues, autoimmune issues. 
And of course, the children, learning disabilities, behavioral problems, you know, all sorts of things. So it's still very much a crisis. And, uh, you know, in my view, the media has totally abandoned this and abdicated their responsibility to cover it and treat it as an ongoing crisis. Well, yeah, let me just start from there, because it, it seems to me that media didn't just stop covering Flint. They kind of declared it over. You know, they they kind of said it's fixed. You've been working with Detroit Metro Times, with The Intercept. And since the start, it seems like local media have done more and done better and done deeper than big media. But in big national media, it's almost not like it's over. It's like, oh, no, no, it, it, it worked out, you know, and that couldn't be more wrong, you're saying. Yeah. If I write a book one day, the media will be a big part of it Mm -hmm. because, honestly, they're as complicit in the cover-up as the politicians at this point. Actually, if I I roll back to 2018, you know, the media at that point was just basically regurgitating the data that then-Governor Snyder and his team were putting out there, data that showed the lead levels were dramatically falling and that the levels were now, quote-unquote, you know, meeting EPA regulations. But I was hearing from residents and sources that they basically manipulated the testing and the data. So I did something radical these days for a journalist, and I went to Flint, and I just started knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. And myself, and at the time, my previous reporting partner, we knocked on nearly 500 doors in the summer and fall of 2018. And what we discovered was that the state of Michigan Environmental Department was literally running residents' water right before taking lead and copper samples. Like just a few minutes before taking the sample, they were running the water, which is against EPA regulations. So voila, they were getting low lead levels because they were basically flushing away potential lead. I was actually working on that story for Newsweek, trying to get it in a bigger national outlet with the hope of it getting, you know, getting traction. Newsweek literally killed the story the week it was supposed to be published, claiming we didn't have enough data, even though we had dozens and dozens of examples on the record, residents on the record that state officials had run their water before testing or told them to run their water before testing. So we ended up self-publishing it. But even in 2018, it was very clear that the way they were testing was completely wrong and borderline just cooking the data. So when you see stories from Reuters and elsewhere that 3,000 other cities have higher lead levels than Flint, I was screaming, well, we don't really know what the real lead levels are in Flint because the, there was no integrity in the testing. Aaron Brockovich, actually, when our story came out, said this is a crime. It's falsifying lead and copper samples. That's a crime, and the testing should be tossed out. So since then, the testing has still been inadequate. They're not even testing as many homes as they should be in Flint, and they haven't even changed all of the busted pipes. <laughs> so how could you say the water's safe if eight years later they haven't even replaced all the pipes They haven't touched the pipes inside their home, which were already damaged. So this is your classic example of, you know, the media got caught up in kind of the five-year Trump circus. A lot of other stories fell through the cracks. And the media, national and local, just basically regurgitated falsified data that was being fed to them by the very state government that presided over the poisoning. And to tell you the truth, the current Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and the current Democratic attorney general, haven't really done much better. There's really been this push to declare it over, to claim that it's not an issue with the water anymore. The water's fine. Now it's just about rebuilding trust. 
Well, I was just in Flint over the summer. I could tell you I spoke with residents who showed me rashes they are still getting from that water, hair loss. They're still losing hair when they shower. Uh, residents describing their eyes burning in the shower. Anecdotally, I have sat in homes within the last year where the water stinks. So, you know, it's very easy for media in New York, D.C., on the West Coast to basically regurgitate what they're fed by the government. But it's a lot harder and more expensive, by the way, to actually go there and with your own eyes and talk to residents to find out, yeah, this is more of a narrative. This isn't actually reality that it's, that it's solved. Well, let me just say, finally, maybe I know the answer. President Biden said just recently, I want you to know I see you, I hear you, we understand, and I've seen and we've understood the damage done in places like Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi. So we've already announced over $7 billion in clean water funding to states so they can fix and upgrade their aging water systems and sewer systems. Um What's your response to that kind of official declaration vis-a-vis human beings in Flint, Michigan? Well, first of all, it's it's a nice slogan to right. say the infrastructure deal is going to deliver clean water and replace all pipes. The actual money earmarked to replace lead pipes is not enough to replace all lead pipes in the country. So that's number one. Number two, there's a misnomer that the only issue with water is lead. That's not the only issue contaminating our water. There's a lot of other contaminants in our water. Right. And a lot of those contaminants are coming from corporate and industrial pollution. So this was more of a marketing slogan uh, and a messaging thing by Biden and the Democrats. Not to say replacing some lead lines is, of course, better than nothing, but that's not going to completely fix the problem. And when you look at Flint specifically, why is it that Flint, Michigan, majority black, those residents don't have Medicare for all? Uh, for being poisoned by their government. But when you look up uh, to Libby, Montana, those residents, 96% white, they have universal health care because of an asbestos disaster that happened over a decade there where a lot of people died. They got universal health care in Libby, Montana. Your listeners should look that up. People of Flint, they don't have universal health care. They got a short-term expansion of Medicaid, and that's pretty much over now. I talk to residents who are nearly going bankrupt because of the bills they have for environmental doctors, because for for heavy metal poisoning, a normal internist is not enough. You really need specific, specialized doctors. So the people of Flint, there's been a lot of woke language and we hear you and, you know, we're going to do everything for you. But if you talk to the people of Flint, they are still screaming for help. And, And real quickly, This is also a major problem with the local media. I've broken at least four pretty significant stories on the Flint water cover-up over the last two years. The Flint Journal has not covered any of it. The Detroit Free Press has not covered any of it. The Detroit News has not covered any of it. And I literally have spoken with people from those outlets who have told me point blank, yeah, there's pressure from the top just to kind of not cover that anymore. So I have no idea why, but... This is a national media failure, but it's also a local media failure because the local media in Michigan has essentially continued this narrative that the water is fine now and that this is now, you know, let's move on. We've been speaking with Jordan Cheriton, reporter and CEO at the independent news network Status Coup News. Thank you so much, Jordan Cheriton, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you.
We saw a good amount of media attention to Reverend Martin Luther King this past week, including, yes, the FBI pretending with a straight face that they are honoring his legacy, but also some acknowledgement of a point that we at FAIR make, that celebration of King today is often a whitewashing, avoiding discussion of many of his actual views, and that the news media who are so full of bromides for King and his death were working hard attacking and undermining him while he lived. Meanwhile, another anniversary that offered opportunity for reflection was utterly overlooked. January 17th marked 60 years since the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first elected prime minister of the post-independence Democratic Republic of the Congo, a crime in which the U.S. played a significant role. In August of 1960, CIA Director Alan Dulles told the agency's station in Congo that it is the clear-cut conclusion that if Lumumba continues to hold high office, the inevitable result will at best be chaos and at worst pave the way to communist takeover of the Congo, with disastrous consequences for the prestige of UN and for the interests of the free world generally. Consequently, we conclude that his removal must be an urgent and prime objective. As corporate media bang the drums for a new or continued Cold War in Africa today, the story of Lumumba seems especially significant. But telling it openly would require a dry-eyed examination of U.S. actions and intentions that corporate news media are just not in the business of providing. We're joined now by Maurice Carney, co-founder and executive director of the group Friends of the Congo. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Maurice Carney. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Jenny. Well, may I just ask you to talk a bit about January 1961, and the context for the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. The country is newly independent, but still in transition. Why was Lumumba considered such a danger? Lumumba was considered a danger for, for several reasons. One, he was a, a nationalist and a Pan-Africanist. And uh, as he articulated in his June 30th, 1960 inaugural speech that he wanted the resources of the Congo to benefit the Congolese people. Anyone familiar with the creation of the Congo was created by uh, European nations. It was created as an outpost for the extraction of natural resources to benefit Europe and the West. And Lumumba represented an end to that system. So that, that's one reason. Secondly, he uh, was uncompromising in his critique of the colonial history in the Congo and really contemporary imperialism. And he was an anti-colonial fighter. So that, that also uh, represented a problem. And so those two reasons, uh, the critique that he brought against colonialism and imperialism, the uncompromising self-sufficiency, self-determination, and pan-Africanism that he articulated indicated that he was someone that couldn't necessarily be controlled or owned or readily influenced by the West. So that posed a huge problem for the United States and European powers as well. Well, I think the failure to even talk about the assassination today reflects 
in some ways just how important and how dangerous Lumumba was judged, so much so that we can't even explore it now. But his murder was important and inspired action. Yeah, in fact, Professor uh, George Nzangolo and Talaja argues that uh, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba is one of the most important assassinations of the 20th century. Professor Nzangolo is now ambassador to the United Nations of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He had written a book entitled uh, Lumumba. So he uh, articulated uh, just the the significance of uh, Lumumba's assassination. In fact, even the chief of station of the CIA in the Congo, Larry Devlin, in a book with the same title, Chief of Station Congo, laid out how critical Lumumba was not only to the Congo, uh, Janine, but to Africa at large. That is to say, Devlin shared and he intimated that we had to get rid of Lumumba because not only would we have lost the Congo, Lumumba would sustain, remain in power, but we would have lost uh, all of Africa. Uh, so we see the centrality of Lumumba to uh, not only post-independence um, Congo, but a post-independence uh, Africa. And uh, the president of, uh, of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, articulated uh, that and concurred with that, because uh, in his book, The Challenge of the Congo, he shared how Congo would ultimately serve as the capital of uh, Nkrumah's project, of the Pan-African project of the United States of uh, Africa. Uh, so Congo, which is located in the heart of the African continent, arguably uh, one of the richest countries on the planet in terms of natural resources, uh, strategically located on the African continent, was vital to Nkrumah's Pan-African project. So it was a very critical country, and Lumumba was a Pan-Africanist who accepted and acknowledged the role that Congo would play in a self-determined, independent Africa. Well, you and I talked at one point about how U.S. officials were saying, and this is just a few years ago, U.S. officials were saying and media were parroting the statement, Congo hasn't had a peaceful transfer of power since 1960, you know, um, without even pretending to explore why that is and what right. the U.S. role has has been in that. And I just wonder if you could address the role of news media here in, I mean, it's mainly what they haven't done with regard to this, or or what they have done, I, I don't know. Yeah, And I think when we had this discussion, it was uh, around the role that, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it may have been Time magazine had played at the time in planting stories that were fed to them by the Central Intelligence Agency in presenting Lumumba in a disparaging fashion, basically working hand-in-glove with U.S. foreign policy in destabilizing the Congo. So the media was, through its vocal means, and at the time of Lumumba, they did play a destructive role, and today through its silence. Uh, We know based on U.S. documents that were recently published, declassified documents that were recently published by the U.S. State Department, that the United States played a critical role in the destabilizing of the Congo, not only during the time of Lumumba, but right up until today. Declassified documents from the State Department say that at a time, the covert action in the Congo was the largest in the world by the United States government, and that for the first 10 years or so 
of Congo's independence. The Central Intelligence Agency had a role to play in who uh, would lead uh, the Congo. You know, it went through several leaders. And, uh, of course, the leader that wound up taking control of the country, uh, Joseph Desiree Mobutu in 1965, was installed, backed, and maintained by the United States. So to the extent that we see instability in the Congo, that we see corruption, uh, that we see a lack of security, the role the United States played in uprooting the nascent democratic process that uh, began in that country with the election of Prime Minister uh, Patrice Lumumba, uh, that role by the United States is central. And it's something that, uh, unfortunately, today's media has not taken up and, and articulated and shared uh, with the American public uh, in the way that it, uh, that it ought to or that it should. Well, finally, right now, Patrice Lumumba's family is fighting for the return of his remains, such as they are. Listeners may not know his body was dissolved in sulfuric acid. But the demands go beyond that important repatriation. If we heard the voice of the Congolese people, not just Lumumba's family, but if we could hear the voice of Congolese people today, what would they be saying that we're not hearing? Well, we, Friends of the Congo, honored the daughter of uh, Lumumba Jr., Congo Week events, uh, Juliana Lumumba, who has led the fight to have her father's remains repatriated to the, to the country. And in her uh, acknowledgement speech, she had a message for the Congolese youth. That is to continue the teachings, uh, the ideas uh, of Lumumba, to look at him as a model and example of sacrificing his life for a country and a continent. And Congolese youth today embrace that sentiment, particularly through their music. There are a number of Congolese musicians, hip-hop artists, who bring Lumumba's ideas and teachings uh, to the current generation of Congolese. So they are actually embracing Lumumba's ideas, embracing Lumumba's teachings, the ideas of self-sufficiency, self-determination, pan-Africanism. The Congolese youth have taken that up today and they are sharing it with their current generation, and they're doing it through music, through art, through writing. So he is, uh, especially in light, uh, Janine, of uh, the lack of strong leadership, not only in the Congo, but throughout the African continent. Uh, Lumumba is being fully embraced, fully shared, and being held up as a model for future leaders. So he's in good stead. And uh, we acknowledge Lumumba uh, ourselves through a campaign that's on uh, Lumumba Day, LumumbaDay.org, LumumbaDay.org, where people throughout the world are joining up and saying they're going, if they, even if the media doesn't speak about it, uh, about Lumumba and his importance and significance, they're going to do so. And they're doing that uh, from the platform of LumumbaDay.org. Every January 17th, he's being held up. Uh, along with the colleagues who were assassinated with him, Maurice Mpolo and Joseph Okito. So his legacy is in very, very good uh, standing with not only Congolese youth, but people throughout the globe. We've been speaking with Maurice Carney, co-founder and executive director of the group Friends of the Congo. You can find them online at friendsofthecongo.org. Maurice Carney, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. It's been my pleasure.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.